0: Hi, I'm Beth Sanders, and welcome to the City Nest Making Podcast. I work with citizens, city government, business and community organizations looking for practical ways to navigate the complexities of city life so they can better hear each other and make better cities for themselves as a result. In this podcast series, I explore two questions. Who do our cities need to be to serve us well? And who do we need to be to serve our cities well? Good afternoon, Jason. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so here we are after a couple weeks of planning to have a conversation about identity. And welcome. I mean, here we are in Zoom again, but pretend we're in my backyard and there's a there's a little garden. There's a couple of big comfy chairs. It's just above zero degrees. So maybe there's a couple blankets for us. We've just put a couple fresh logs on the fire and the birds are chirping in the background. And you have your warm drink of choice in your hand. And here we are. So let's start with a, with a check-in and my check-in for either of us to answer first is what part of your identity is particularly alive in you today?
1: Yeah, well, thanks, Beth, for inviting me to participate in your podcast. This is my first and only podcast. I don't know if I'll join others, but um, I was really excited to be able to join a conversation with you because you have such great things to say about the city and also city planning. And uh, this virtual sort of fire uh, is really cozy and uh, beverage of choice. What am I drinking right now? Well, probably something with like Bailey's or something. Maybe it's like Bailey's and coffee, delicious. And then, you know, that will sort of transition into my favorite cocktail of choice, which is a Moscow meal, but that would be for later. Um, but yeah, so for me, the, the identity uh, that um, is sort of awake for me is I think very much my sexual identity of being a queer person of color um, and how I'm so just happy with how I have overcome so many different types of barriers, not only just um, societal, societal barriers, but also just the barriers that we create for ourselves that limit <clears throat> liberation and just freedom of spirit. And we were having this conversation just before this about how, um, you know, at, at the city of Edmonton where I work, I've been so, I've been feeling really refreshed and supported um, with colleagues to be myself and to show up in the way that is authentic to me. So I would say that uh, my queer experience, my queer identity um, is most
0: alive for me. What about you? Okay, well, I should start with a drink. that's right um right now what it is is it's a a favorite mug of tea and it's a hot chili pepper chocolate tea so it's not like hot chocolate at all there's just a a hint of chocolate but it's it's just a really nice kind of afternoon tea that's not too heavy but you know something something to drink and then all all I'm into something that's not Bailey's. I used to be into Bailey's, but in Hanson Distillery, local in Edmonton, they make a Bailey's like liqueur called Morning Glory. Ooh. And it is spectacular and it's really good in Earl Grey tea.
1: Yummy. I'm gonna have to try that. Okay. And local. Love <laughs> that's,
0: <it. laughs> that's right. It's a it's really nice. So Bailey's is done morning glory is is in okay so that's my drink now and later and what's alive in me now with my about identity well i'm gonna say um it's a shifting identity so part of what i'm growing into early days yet is i i mean up until four years ago was in a heterosexual marriage and it ended and, and I've started to date a woman, which is completely new. So that's that's completely new identity. And it's one of those things where I don't know what it means. Um, I don't know exactly where it's going, but it's it feels, the person feels really comfortable, right? Even though we're in COVID times and it's all Zoom calls, but it's all, anyway. So for my check-in question, it's shifting identity in the um, process of, of shifting.
1: So that's that's love that. me. I love that. And I'm so excited for you. And uh, thanks for sharing that. And you're, my you're welcome. Spice, I, I you've lived in Winnipeg, but there's this chocolate drink that's a spicy chocolate drink from Constance Papa. I'm not sure if you've ever had it but it's no. like a thick chocolatey hot and spicy drink and it, it it's so good in the winter time but um yeah i'm already excited for this conversation i feel like we have both shed a layer of vulnerability and uh and diving
0: right in so yes thank you. thank you jason so um so here's an opportunity i mean we have things about us that are the same and things about us that are different and this feels like a good time for you and I to talk about how our identity and our identities shape and have shaped our experience of the cities that we've lived in and we've both lived in Winnipeg and we've both lived in in Edmonton of course other places too but how does our identity shape our experience let's let's jump into that
1: yeah so for me I think the the ones that come to mind are my locational identity, uh, my sexual identity, uh, my age, as well as my ethnicity. So those are four different identity factors that I think have really played a significant and profound role in how I view the city, how I want to shape the city and how I'm inspired and motivated to carve out space for others, especially those who are underrepresented or those who are marginalized. But starting right from the top, I think locationally, uh, I was born and raised in Winnipeg, Manitoba, as everyone in Edmonton would know. I'm so proud. To be in uh, but I also am growing to love Edmonton. I've been here for, you know, three years now. I moved here in 2018, but I was born and raised in Winnipeg. And I grew up in the north end of the city. So I grew up on um, Arlington Street in between Church and McRae and um, You know, for me, I always thought that the neighborhood was fulfilling and I, I knew my neighbors uh, right across the street from me um, was a park. It was called Sinclair Park um, ample green space. There was a tennis court you Could walk to school within 15 minutes or less. All my friends were in the neighborhood. And so I always thought like the neighbor that I grew up in was, you know, a great neighborhood. And then I went to university, uh, the the downtown campus where, you know, you start to see different types of people and people who are converging from all parts of the city. And that's where I think I awakened and started to understand power imbalances and disparities uh, in how our cities are formed, and also the sets of privilege that we uh, that we have. And so, you know, thinking about people that perhaps grew up in the suburbs or who've grown up in the south side of the city would would stereotype the north end as being sort of a lower income neighborhood. Um, you know, people would even cast it as being. Um, crime and poverty ridden, you know, we've, we've heard from media and journalists who have created videos that are, that stereotype the types of people that live in these neighborhoods. Um, And so I think when I, when I started university, I started to see clearly how, you know, where you're, where you are raised and where you grow up plays a big role in the privilege that you have, and sort of the upward trajectory that you you can aspire to. And so I think about my locational identity and think about how how that has played a role in how I view how cities should be shaped, the infrastructure that should be provided, you know, those who have and those who don't. And that really centers, I think, my practice and, and how I view the city moving forward. Um, but yeah, all I could remember living in the North End was the Arlington Bridge the most steep bridge and you know i remember bringing my bike all the way up and just the joy of being able to descend it was a very dangerous feeling but being able to bike into the downtown and 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 you know you start to see um the disparities and where where investments go um, and at that time I, I really hadn't understood what city planning was or city building or But it was just my experience growing up in my neighbourhood where I started to then see the disparities and the shifts uh, and the different types of changes that neighbourhoods experience. And so, yeah, so locational identity plays a big role in how I view the city and how I shape the city. My sexual identity is another one of those, um, uh, another identity factor or, or attribute that plays a role in how I view the city. I would say that I always sort of knew that I was pretty fabulous and fierce (laughs) at a young age, but I didn't come out until about 18 or 19. So there was, you know, a time like, you know, as early as 12 to, you know, that time I came out where I was uncomfortable in my own skin, uncomfortable in city spaces, you know, and fraught with fear that I would be read as queer in, in a public space. And I've also have dealt with, you know, not only um, discrimination and prejudice in public space as a queer person, but also sexual harassment in in public space as a result of my my sexual identity. Um, And so, yeah, sexual identity plays a big role in how I view the city, um, how I view, you know, how we plan and design and and how we make space for for others who are marginalized and then age, plays another role, I think, in how I view the city. You know, I I was 24 when I was managing a downtown BIA in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and, you know, it was very fun being able to um, be in a position of leadership, being able to experiment and, and come up with really great initiatives for the downtown. But also, um, I quickly understood that other people who are in positions of power are generally not within the mid 20s are often, um, you know, a lot older. And so there have been experiences where I've like, you know, have felt that power imbalance right in the moment and, you know, I've been cast as, are you supposed to be in this room? Like, you know, do you really have a stake in this conversation? So not being read as somebody that has agency and capacity and can be a leader because of your age, and then I think finally, you know, be, my ethnicity um, is another identity factor that plays a big role in how I view the city and how I've experienced the city. Um, the North End is home to a pretty um, racially diverse community, and so I was always around people that looked like me, and then. know as i started to converge into other spaces in the city i quickly realized that i there were a lot of other folks who did not look like me and so that's played a big role in how you know i view the city as well and and and, you know it's all sort of coming to a head recently with you know all the different protests and civil reckoning and these movements that are happening across the world and and you know i felt a, a, a tremendous sadness over the past week with um the anti-Asian uh, you know hate crimes and 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 think about you know the misogyny and the the racism that goes into that but also relate how you know I've also been a victim of that that those same types of discrimination as well so yeah those are the four different types of identity factors that I think play a big role in how I have experienced the city of myself personally, how that really centers and motivates my practice as a city builder and also, you know, whose voices I, I'm naturally drawn to, you know, to trying to amplify or to support or to nurture.
0: Thank you, Jason. I, I'm appreciating the similarities and the differences between our these just various ways that we can identify ourselves. So, so I'm 51. I'm older. You don't have to say how old you are, but people I'm should 34. just know. Jason, you're what?
1: I'm 34.
0: Okay, <laughs> so I'm almost 20 years older than you. So, so I'm older. So have have a different experience, um, but I can so relate to being 25 in my first job in Brandon Manitoba yeah and not being taken seriously because of my age and I can you know in my mid-30s my hair started to go gray, and I let it I didn't I didn't want to cover because I'm like hey if there's any clues that might convey that I'm older than I am I'm gonna let them happen because (laughs) because people have a bias you know that if you're young you couldn't possibly be competent. Or because I was female in that early job, I know that there were, I got little rumblings of, you know, people in, you know, that I worked with or elected officials who were sure I was having an affair with one of the city councillors because, you know, he was like that and I'm a young woman, it must be happening. But of course, nothing was happening, right? So, but it's like that just kind of damages how well I didn't it it changes how well it affects how serious they take me in my job so I'm like very clear like whatever anyway I didn't have to deal with it per se but I knew it was happening right so they they take you less seriously so the the age thing but I'm older now so I'm older than you now and we have people would take us both differently at this point in time in 2021 because of our our ages um And then the ethnicity thing, we're very different because I'm white as can be. And while I might be female and have gender things happening, like I've been, uh, uh, you know, white, married, children, and um, while the patriarchal system world that we live in um, doesn't work for women, it works a lot better for white women than it does for any people of color women, male, whatever. Right. So I, I very much have, oh, well, I come from a place of privilege, to be honest. And I was having this conversation with someone the other day about, it's like I was born to navigate in the bureaucracy that we're in. Cause I'm, I'm comfortable in it. I understand it, but it's almost like I literally was because I, I grew up in it, I know it, I understand it, I'm steeped in it, I'm programmed, I'm conditioned to operate in the bureaucracy, but anybody outside of that white system may not have that same ease or easefulness. So that's, that's a privilege that comes with my identity that I, I recognize and I'm learning to figure out what that, all, what that all means. And like in our check-in, like my sexual identity has been straight white female very conventional nuclear family. I did it. I did all that stuff. And, and then I'm in a, a time of, of transition and we'll, we'll see what that, what that means. But I do have the benefit of living till the age of like 5051 of not having any, any of the challenges of being queer. Anyway, I don't have to say anything else about that because I don't, that's not my lived experience. So it can't actually be a part of my identity if it's not my lived experience up until now, right? Like, Absolutely. anyway, Absolutely. yeah.
1: You know, and for a very long time, you know, I was, you know, not qu- out- outwardly queer too. You know, I might've been, you know, openly queer to a, a select group of friends, but I also need to, um, check my privilege too and that I've also hid from that identity too and have potentially been part of, you know, discrimination against, you know, others within the queer community until I felt that same confidence to be able to be openly about it. Um, And so your point about um, privilege is so well taken, you know, I think for me personally, I privilege is so contextual, you know, I, I have benefited from, you know, sets of privilege as well as being. A man, um, being well educated, um, being able to speak English and so I think about newcomers or, or new Canadians or those who are new to a city you know um, their experience would be so different than mine but yeah I've I definitely have been read as those identities though we have in the past and
0: so well that's and that's something that will happen to you that will never happen to me mm, yeah right so there's a there's a there, there's a significant difference in how like the city experiences us.
1: Right. It's a really good point.
0: Because I like I will not be misconstrued by dominant culture. Like I'm I am red as as I am.
1: Yeah, and no one's no one's looking at me as a straight white man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's not possible. <laughs> but see how like that, I mean that shapes then for sure like who we are as professionals. We're both professional planners. So this is this is another thing that we share that we work in the same profession. Right now we're, we're serving the same community, the same city of Edmonton. I mean, I do things in other places, but a major client of mine are, are various parts of, of Edmonton. But um, yeah, like how does, how does, who we are and how people read us, shape our identity as as planners and the work that we do.
1: Yeah, and actually, I want to go back to what you had said about your story about Brandon Manitoba. I think that is just so messed up that that, that happened to you and, uh, and how that really goes to our point about others sort of narrating your experience, like you, you're losing this self-agency to to narrate your own experience and how others sort of make those judgments. And, and so you often think, you know, why, like, why? Why are, you, why, are you, why are you able to do that? Um, so just wanted to close the loop on that. But yeah, your question about our identity within the profession, that's been a big one for me. I've been thinking a lot about that. Um, so I'm fairly new to the profession, actually. I, I only graduated from my master's in city planning in 2017 so that's uh, so I'm, i consider myself a bit of a baby planner
0: okay so you're a four-year-old baby and i'm a 26 year old 26 <laughs> year old in the profession
1: right yeah. and uh, yeah so you're you're taking care of me you're helping me you're helping me grow um
0: it goes two ways
1: <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, I'm fairly new to the profession, but before that I was doing a lot of, you know, with the downtown BAA, was involved in, you know, placemaking and downtown revitalization conversations and really was prescribed to sort of an advocacy uh, perspective of neighborhood growth and, and really trying to spark a conversation. And that's really where I really learned more about planning. And then, um, yeah, so then I just graduated in 2017, but just a year before graduation, I ended up working at a private sector firm called um, HTFC Planning and Design in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And my focus was on Indigenous planning and neighborhood level community plans. And then I moved to Edmonton in 2018. So I was only at HTFC for a couple of years. And then I moved to Edmonton to help support the info roadmap. And actually, our first meeting was on day one where you were leading the workshop. I don't know if you remember, but I sure uh,
0: do because you brought Morden's chocolates.
1: Yes. <laughs> oh, those questions! And I felt like, you know, if you were from Winnipeg, you knew why they were so good. And I think that if, and if you weren't from Winnipeg, people were probably like, whoa, like this is amazing. So that was a really fun experience. And that's where I came to know you and, and started to learn more about, you know, your writing and, and your philosophy, but really just saw a genuine interest in, in building, in building a really good conversation with others and creating space for others. So that's what I saw in you that, that drew me into your writing. And I think we've talked about that before where I've just really enjoyed the eloquence and your thoughtfulness about the city and who's, who's part of sort of the city making experience. But, you know, I think that, um, you know and I work at the city of Edmonton now. And so I think the city of Edmonton is, you know there is diversity and there is a desire for, you know, gender-based analysis plus on our programs and our initiatives, you know, but more broadly speaking, you know, the profession is dominated by white men still, unfortunately, um, and we, we see that in, in our stats, um, you know, there's 7,000 members with the Canadian Institute of Planners um, across the country and so those are planners who want to prescribe to being part of a national body. So there could be more than 7,000 planners. But just recently in 2018, um, there was a, a national compensation study that looked, at, um, that looked at experiences of planners across the country. And I think out of 7,000 members in Canada, 2,000 people filled out the survey. And the survey showed that um, there were lots of imbalances when it comes to pay. For women, women of color, um, but that only eight percent of the the respondents identified as racialized, and so eight percent, eight percent, yeah, out of two thousand. And so then I think about, well, what does that make up out of the seven thousand that you know, or the others who didn't respond to the survey? But then that, that made me curious about, okay, what is that? How does that compare, you know, across? the world, you know, in in Canada, I think we still need to look at we still need to get more data to understand the experiences. I think that compensation study that was was created is a first good step towards it. But I think we need even more data to understand what those experiences are in Canada. But just in a quick deep dive that I did in some of the cities outside of Canada, you know, a lot, of, a lot of planners of color often identify how they, you know, often are relegated to frontline positions or tokenized for public engagement for other people of color, you know, despite whether or not they would want to do that type of work. So I think that the profession itself often um, creates an identity or carves out a path for a person of color and sometimes unwillingly you know it's kind of this well you're a person of color so you should be talking to community a because you know they're they're overrepresented with x y z or, or yeah and so a lot of the data shows how you know racialized folks generally are in those frontline public engagement positions and not in these visionary planning or policy planning roles And the data supports that outside of Canada, too, where, you know, a lot of people of color say that, you know, they're passed up, they're passed up for leadership positions or senior planner positions or um, the ability to work on quote unquote sexy projects that, you know, give, you know, white male planners the ability to, you know, become these urbanist influencers and to have their voices heard. So, So I think about, you know, those trends and those shifts, and and I'm curious about how that translates and and unfolds at a, you know, Canadian level. But I can only say from my own experience that um, I've certainly have been in many cases, the only person of color in a planning room or conversation. And, uh, you know, there was a moment too, when I was in a space where, All of the planners were white, and I was the only person of color. And I just remember the conversation being focused on how do we amplify voices of those who are underrepresented from the community. And I just found it to be, on one end, really positive. You know, it's great having these conversations. But then the conversation was like, well, how do we involve these people of color? Like, there's no one of color who's in this room. You know, and I just, I remember just, you know, taking a moment and thinking, wait, do people not see me here? <laughs> like, and, you know, because I am a person of colour. And so I've had to think, I've thought critically about that particular experience. And and so I think now that actually a lot of people of colour in these positions in planning often perform whiteness to be able to participate. Um, You know, and we were talking about this just before the podcast about performance, right? Like sometimes we need to subdue our identity factors to be heard, um, to not be cast as one way or the other. The amount of times I've been cast as quirky, sassy, saucy, you know, like, oh, don't, don't involve Jason. You know what type of conversation that will lead to, you know? All of those have connotations, right? And 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 I often, you know, curious about whether or not that's connected to my queer identity. Um, yeah, so I would say well, that
0: you're 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 effervescent at times <laughs> and vibrant and vivacious, and maybe maybe what happens is people notice that more than a professional competency. The same way. Um, white people like myself will notice an accent more than professional competency or whatever story it is we we humans tell ourselves about someone who's who's different right and you know the other thing I think about just as I'm reflecting on the experience you just described is like one of the things I've learned about me and my whiteness so part of my locational identity is I spent most of my time growing up the formative years was in Grand Prairie so northern Alberta and when I was in elementary school largely we would have been like a class of white kids with some indigenous kids and then by the time I got to junior high and high school there were families in Grand Prairie from all over the world. So my friends were like their lineage was all over the world. So definitely people of color, right? But I grew up thinking I don't see race. Mm. We're all the same. So, So I didn't see stuff, which for a long time I thought, well, that's a healthy way to like, to look at people like to look at you and see, like see who you are, but what I'm missing, which I'm feeling like maybe was missing in that room, is I'm missing that, well, yeah, you are different. You don't have the same experience of the world because you're not white. And it's not that it's right or wrong that you're not white, but in my, in my whiteness, if I choose to not see the color of your skin, the color of your body, then I'm completely missing my own whiteness and what I what I get by traveling around unencumbered because of because of my my whiteness so it's I'm imagining for those folks in the room that they're thinking it's a good thing to not see you like they're maybe imagining they are just only seeing your your competency but there's a big but are they are they missing out that no, there is something. There is something different, and it it often changes everything.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, and like you said, not to be ashamed or to feel like you've you've gotten something wrong. Dig into it. Like try to understand those lived experiences, and and how do you how do we learn from that together? Um, is huge. Yeah. I, I was thinking, uh, and I shared this with, uh, and I wondered your thoughts about it. But I was talking to another racialized person at the city, and uh, throughout practice, but this idea that like your lived experience does not offer an opportunity to play it safe in the profession. Um, what are your thoughts?
0: About say that? say more. I'm not completely following.
1: Yeah. yeah. Say, so say it again. So me and some some racialized folks in the profession were thinking about how our lived experience doesn't afford us the opportunity to play it safe, and this this connected to how you know it's harder for us to ignore the um, the marginalized, vulnerable experiences of people because of our shared experience and our. Because you experience. know
0: that vulnerability.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Totally
0: you 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 know the threats you've received them right potentially violence whether yep. it's physical or verbal Absolutely. emotional abuse so i mean when i think of playing it safe so then so i'm imagining now jason that i'm imagining like you're in a room something's happening and it, it's totally targeting you playing it safe could mean I just sit and take it because if I don't react, then maybe I'll be invisible or, or no, like it's really serious and it's not about playing safe in that way anymore. It's about saying this shit's got to stop because it's way too close to home. In a way, in a way, in a way that, and I'm only imagining because it happens in a way that I can't imagine because I'm, I'm not like me, my white body isn't like it's not it doesn't happen to me in small ways or big ways. The gender thing happens to me, but not the racial thing. Right.
1: No, that's absolutely it. And I feel like this is where then, you know, for me, instinctually, the work of city planning becomes in intrinsically personal and, and emotional and,
0: and how can it not
1: be? Right, but there's this larger professional drive towards technocratic, technocratic sort of technical expertise without yeah remembering that, you know, we can be, those are all sort of well-intentioned normative exercises, but it's really fundamentally um, failing to ignore, um, uh, failing to sort of, I'm sorry, not ignore, failing to recognize the experience of, experiences of those that don't fit within that box.
0: Yeah. So here's a simple example like from my experience where so one of my former identities it's not super alive in me now is being a mom. Right. So when I was working in in Brandon and we're doing things like subdivision approvals and all that kind of stuff and it was very normal to have streets with no sidewalks. Same thing when I was working in Fort McMurray. Or maybe there'd be a sidewalk on one side, and we're talking about neighborhood streets with no sidewalk. And yeah. as a mom, so first off, where do we where do we go for a walk? Can we go for a walk right out our front door, like mom and little kids, mom and dad and little kids, whatever combination? Can little little people and their caregivers go for a walk easily? Not if there's no sidewalk. Huge. And, and then I watched, and then I watched my. My second kid, who didn't walk forever, but he had this crazy crawl and scoot thing. Like he didn't walk till fifteen months. It was really funny. But he <laughs> totally destroyed his pants, like scooting up the sidewalk. Wow. Like he just because he was on his, he just would drag one knee. It was really funny. Anyway, I can't I can't verbally explain it. I could do a physical demo, which we can't do. But anyway. But like I'm watching this little guy and my kids are like just sitting on the front steps and they're playing out front and doing the sidewalk and they can go this far, they can go that far and they have a great time. And then I'm at work. So this is where my personal experience comes in. I'm at work and I'm like, we're designing this experience for young little people and their caregivers out of the city. But I never would have figured it out if I wasn't a mom sitting on the front step with my kids or the earlier house that we lived in where there was no sidewalk. And I'm like, let's get the hell out of this house and find one that's got a, got a sidewalk. Cause we had to cross a busy street to get to a sidewalk, but just that ease of play in the neighborhood and connecting with your neighbors was absent because there was no sidewalk. So like Mm -hmm. the person, so that's a, like, that's a, a gender perspective and, and one as a, as a mom, but I'm sure there's experiences you've had in whole other ways. Like what makes a a space safe to be queer in? Oh, Do you you have have an example?
1: Yeah, well, before I get into that point though, I just wanted to note, like, I just finished over the weekend uh, the book, Feminist City, A Field Guide by Leslie Kern. Yeah,
0: yeah, I was, I've been reading it for several, several weeks, but I just finished it on the weekend too.
1: Oh, wow, another similarity. <laughs> so there's that chapter called Cities for Moms. And uh, the I, I just pulled up the quote that I thought was really powerful. But um, the quote was, our cities are patriarchy written in stone, brick, glass, and concrete. And then male power and privilege are upheld by keeping women's movement, movements limited and their ability to access different spaces constrained. And those ones resonated so strongly with me. And I think about your experience and I think about, like, my best friends who are now becoming caregivers and parents and, uh, and my best friends who are now moms and, you know, going for walks with them with their stroller. Like, it's just such a different experience. I would have never understood that to be a barrier as a man who has been able to easily navigate um, the city. And I think about, yeah, and I think about the, the anti-Asian um, hate crimes that have been largely misogynistic in nature. Um, and thinking about all of the different, all the different tweets and comments that you know women are sharing about how they felt unsafe or they felt, you know, over-surveilled or uh, distrusting of public space, and and that really that really um, that really made me think about, you know, how do I participate in being part of the solution? And how do I how do I help? And so my question back to you, before we go into the queer experience is: how do those who don't have that experience awaken to that? Like, how do they, how do they accept and receive that information? And, and, and how do we move forward collectively?
0: Well, um, I'm not in charge of what other people choose to allow into their awareness. That's a, good point. So that's, that's, that's a choice we make. What I do in my work, however, is attempt to create the conditions for people to work with people who aren't quite like them or have a different perspective and and then open the doors for oh hang on a second they have a completely different experience than mine and there's a legitimate contribution and then invite the inquiry well what would it mean to incorporate it And so a lot of my work is what I call creating the the social habitat where we're willing to hear stories and experiences that are not our own and do the personal work to allow that information into, into my system and integrate it and be changed by it. It doesn't mean It doesn't mean I have to let go of my way of thinking or being. I might have to adjust to accommodate someone else's needs. But isn't that kind of what cities are supposed to be? Like, Leslie Kern is very clear. It is not about designing the physical design of the city, like the sidewalks is going to solve everything. Like, there's something else that needs to happen, which is, so who are we as people? Mm. One of the indicators is do we design for all people like that's an indicator like of our of our built form but who we are as a people is way way up front but if we're not including perspectives that are different than our own then we're definitely not making a city that serves everyone well or most people well and I'm going to get to you and you're the queer space example. But one of the things I was thinking of earlier, Jason, is if we were to take all of the planners in our city, public, private, whatever they are, wherever they work, so not just at the city of Edmonton, our government, but all over, it'd be fascinating to look at like the the ethnicity of that group of people and then look at the ethnicity of Edmonton and see, do we, as our professional face in Edmonton, do we look like the people we serve? Just generally. And then the question would be, does leadership look like the people we serve? I don't have the answer to that question, but I'm pretty sure it's no, we don't look like the people we serve. And there you have it.
1: I have done a bit of a, an investigation. On
0: that. <laughs> because I, I
1: obviously love to think about these. I don't have, I have uh, so much time on my hands that I'm like looking at like the numbers and and organizational charts, but I did a quick little deep dive on our organizational charts and um, you know, obviously making assumptions about someone who could be racialized based on their name so still not being able to fully tell the picture, but there are. There is only one person of color in a director role within the department I work in. Lots of um, there's good gender representation though, which I think is a, a good step in the right direction. But only one person of color in a director. So one
0: director out of how many?
1: Um, I would I would have to take a look at the numbers, but probably more than ten. So yeah,
0: you
1: know, yeah. substantive enough. And then then I look at the other parts of the city, and there are many women of color in sort of social services type departments, like the housing and homelessness area, citizen services. And so you think, you know, why, why the discrepancy there, you know, and, and, and I think I've talked to you about this too, about how, you know, I've noticed too, like in development review or development applications, there are many racialized folks in that, in that department and area. And, uh, and yeah, just. The, the tension or sort of, you know, when people say that development applications or review is sort of this dirt planning or factory work, I've heard those types of things or sort of mundane, you know, um, local government work, you know, does that, is that imparting a judgment about the people that work in there? And why is it that it's sort of overrepresented with one specific demographic? Yeah.
0: And those so, are important questions to ask. And of course, like what we bring with our identity is not the only thing we bring but it's a it's a it's a slice and a flavor and if a homogenous group were, and we know this is the, the lineage of the planning profession in Canada white cisgendered heterosexual men whether they were engineers in days of your architects planners when planners started like that's who designed our cities like there's no ifs ands or buts about it absolutely well so then it- the question is what are we what are we growing into so those diversity of perspectives that are maybe not on a team how do you go how yeah. do you go and get them and weave them in and it requires people like me to being open to influence being open to being shaped by others experiences or or i'm not professionally responsible like if a group of white people is supposed to be representative or do the planning work on behalf of a community, and that community isn't 100% white. I mean, in 15 years, um, white will be the min- minority in, in Alberta. So yeah. who, who, so that's Alberta. So I'm saying Edmonton too, but yeah. um, who are we as a, as a planning profession then? Right?
1: And, and when do we, like, know to pass the microphone, to share the microphone, you know, and, and yeah, and I've been thinking so much about that over the past year, like, I obviously have a platform that I have, that I use, and I try to shape conversation. Um, but even last year, like, you know, I was thinking about, um, you know, the, anti-Black sort of racism that was happening in the country and around the world and wanting to be part of driving a conversation and I immediately had to check my own privilege in that moment like why do I want to have this conversation you know why am I pushing for this and so I ended up you know collaborating with um, you know a friend of mine who is a Black planner in the profession who has we've had long-standing conversations about you know inequities in the profession and so I found that to be an authentic place to start to have a conversation with a colleague make space and then also to say hey like I have a space do you want this space like do you want to share this perspective how do I how do I participate in this exchange and that was a really good experience and 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 that sort of punctuated the necessity for relationships, like like real authentic relationships that never were premised on some type of transaction right from the outset. And so the fact that, you know, Sheena from CIP, her and I could write an article about anti-Black racism and discrimination in the profession and in our spaces because we had built over the last four years, you know, a relationship, where we could be vulnerable, where we could be open about, you know, what we wanted to talk about. And so yeah, that that's really awakened a lot of conversations in me and and, and thinking a lot about that.
0: Yeah. So tell me about your queer space example.
1: Yeah, okay. So, well, you know, in a prairie city, like, you know i and i've i've been to so many different cities where there are gay districts you know and i think lots of tourists love checking out you know cities and their chinatowns and their downtowns and sometimes you say like i want to go check out that gay district right you go to montreal you want to go to the gay district you want to go to you go to toronto vancouver you want to see those areas because they're alive with people they're alive with businesses and it is a place for everybody it's not just for gay people but you know straight folks are there it's too. inclusive right totally and so you think about those experiences and you're like wow how you know urban space and what it looks like can really communicate the value of a city the values of its residents and its people and so all those other cities i always like wow like what a great inclusive space then you think about our prairie experiences and you think where are those spaces to engage you know do we have these sort of you know openly queer unabashedly inclusive spaces in the city you know and i would say in winnipeg we don't um you know i think we're getting there with some spaces but you know i could i can sort of count many different recount of many different experiences of prejudice and discrimination, not only being, you know, um, read as queer in spaces and how that can lead to, you know, uh, perceptions of unsafety in the evening and, and in different places in the downtown or wherever. But also, like, I just remember, you know, walking, you know, you know, nonchalant, you know, after, you know, a concert, you know, hand in hand with a male partner of mine, you know, and showing just a small amount of affection, you know, I'm not, I'm not all, all about complete PDA <laughs> for anybody, uh, but, you know, I showed a bit of affection and I just remember um, just quickly being called, you know, the F the F word um, and, and how that made me feel unwanted, um, that I didn't belong, e- even in a space where like I have, espoused as being a place for everybody. So in that moment, I, you know, I quickly was like, wow, like I don't belong in the space that I think should belong to everybody. So I definitely think that our, you know, our urban spaces are largely designed for the heterosexual white male experience. Um, And you're often thinking, you know, how do you sort of build solidarity or how do you connect with others who might be equally queer, like, or, or, or have those experiences. So, how do we create those spaces where people can can feel included? Is yeah, a big question of mine. And there's lots of great cities that sh- that have done some great things about that. Whether it's creating a gay district or Calgary just created this queer history map, which you know identifies spaces that are um, historically places of celebration, places of protest, places that are unsafe you know and so this becomes a tool for people to read and understand how to navigate their space but then you think why do we need a tool like that that just highlights you know six or seven spaces in the city that in itself is pointing to a larger issue right so but we're getting there i think and and certainly you know With the work on the zoning bylaw project at the city we're we're really trying to address head on some of those assumptions we make about people. And the things that we develop in our city, you know there's a whole range of different inequities that we're exploring and that's really inspiring to see that type of work happen so yeah.
0: You're making me think of back when I was at U of M as a student because we went to the same school is. And I always had this thing going on in my, my brain, my whole being about, is it process or is it product, like the content? And you're really shining a light on, like there's physical locations in a city where, where people feel included or excluded, like there's an identity piece. Right. Like is there, is, is there a place where you like really truly feel at home, which comes with some safety, but also like identity and culture and that kind of thing. So that's the physical thing, but that's like an, that's an output, but is the process to get to those things inclusive itself? Because if it's not, the product is not going to be, and that's kind of what I landed on. And I could not convince any advisors at that time until I got a new one that came in, that the process by which we come up with policies is as important as what we come up with. Because you won't come up with anything smart if if the process and the people involved are not are not involved. Like if it like it just can't be that that wise.
1: Absolutely. We well, we all come with our own baggage and our own assumptions and our biases, right? And so You know, I don't think we're ever going to be at a place where we know absolutely everything. So the larger we can build out our process to involve different people, I think the better for, like you said, the end product, um, you know, the thing that we're trying to produce or create.
0: And knowing that it'll never be perfect, either the process or the product, doesn't mean don't try. Yes. (laughs) Right? Like... Like do something better. Like every project I work on, we move the needle a little bit further on on a few fronts and it's not good enough, but I know we're moving the needle ahead. We're doing something better. We're improving, we're improving, we're improving. The moment I'm doing something and we're not improving anything, like I'll just feel like deflated and I'll quit that and I'll go put my energy somewhere where we are improving things because that's what counts. Absolutely. Oh, Jason, for a for a checkout for us because this has been lovely, and I want to capture some nuggets from both of us before we conclude here. Um, let's both reflect on something we know and and we know and understand now that we didn't know when we started this conversation. What's been revealed to us?
1: Yeah, well, I would say that this conversation was so. Uh, illuminating and so nurturing and uh, yeah it flew by very quickly <laughs> uh, so you made it really effortless and, and thank you for for holding the space for me to feel comfortable to share and and I really appreciated being able to hear from you and your story too because I don't think we've had a chance to really just sit down and just chat about our experiences aside from just the planning work that we've been working on together so I really appreciate that so thank you. Um, but I think the big lesson for me is that, you know, we are, we are more connected by our vulnerabilities than we are by our strengths. We have so much lived experience that we can, we can share and take in together, which I think could amount to some really positive and productive benefits. We just need to be open to those vulnerabilities.
0: Mm-hmm. What about you? What has been revealed to me? I think I, I, <laughs> I keep saying this in other conversations, I think I kind of knew this, but there's something that's landing a little bit more firmly in me, which is like, I, I have this sense. So like you and Sheena or you and, and other people of color or queer colleagues will talk about your experiences and you can support each other in doing that. And then I'm thinking about me and my whiteness and white people and how we never talk about that. Mm. Ooh. so so women, women will a bit. But um, white, white, white women and white men and women don't talk about well, racialized experiences or or maybe we are but we're talking about our white racialized experiences without even being conscious of our white racialized experiences so that's what i'm that's what's been revealed to me and it just got clearer as i as i said it
1: i love it yeah. so you need to do more conversation so Thank you.
0: Yeah. Well, and then the invitation is, isn't it, for people who listen to this, whether white or people of color, and in particular, if you're white, um, how can you create space in your life to have conversations like this in a safe way that allows a person of color to be brave with you to reveal what, what their world is like? I've got three questions for you to ponder after having listened to Jason and I in conversation. Which of your identities feel alive, fully part of your work and participation in city life? Which of your identities are you hiding or tucking away? Who are the people around you whether in your personal or professional lives, who make room for all of your aliveness. Thanks for listening to the City Nest Making podcast. If you'd like to further explore city nest making and who we need to be to make cities that serve us well, check out bethsanders.ca. Until next time, build with care. Let's aim to be conscious of how we make these places we call home.